Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to another uh, exciting edition of the Bible Geek, uh, and I'm Robert M. Price, said Bible Geek. Um, I uh, want to just repeat something I've said. I, most of you already know this, uh, but just in case there's any new folks around, uh, the word geek uh, tends to uh, denote uh, an obsessed hobbyist, uh, and uh, I uh, wouldn't repudiate that. I'm a geek in a number of different fields, uh, one of them being the Bible, um, because uh, even though I don't any longer believe it's the word of God or that it has any authority, uh, I am fascinated with it. It's almost like um, when in uh, Mark 13, it says, let the reader understand, or in the book of Revelation, this calls for wisdom. Uh, the Bible is, um, even more than when it was written, a great and vast puzzle. Uh, it's a real challenge to the understanding. Uh, plus, it dispenses wisdom, right? There's a whole lot of wise stuff in the Bible, not every part of it, and there's some distinctly unwise things uh, that reflect the, the values of past ages and so on, but it's just utterly fascinating to some of us who have uh, grown up with it. And uh, as in my case, it may be that your uh, fascination with the Bible began when you were uh, a believing Christian and because you were a believing Christian. And uh, eventually your avid attention to the Bible before religious reasons forced you to a crossroads where you felt that uh, what you would come to know about the Bible uh, contradicted the faith commitment you had in it and in Christianity. And uh, yeah, that's that's where I was all right. And when you get to that point, uh, you have to decide, well, do I want to go with my traditional set of beliefs, or do I want to understand the Bible no matter the cost? Uh, do I want to take that path uh, no matter where it leads, because uh, the knowledge is the siren song there? And uh, then you might notice that uh, you really don't have any uh, choice but to take uh, the second path, because... Uh, uh, if you were now knowing what you know, you know too much, and you can't really go back to uh, your beliefs as you once held them with any kind of clear conscience. Uh, you were told it was important to be honest, uh, intellectually honest, honest with yourself, and when you begin to know better than what you learned and once believed, what are you going to do? You're, you're kind of disqualified from uh, the old way, but also liberated from it because it has become a burden that you shouldn't have to bear. And uh, boy, what a great feeling of uh, uh, 
relief and uh, light uh, once you uh, get rid of such a burden and uh, just plunge on into your own personal quest to, under, quest to understand the Bible. Why are you doing it? Somebody might say. Uh, you, you're not, you don't think it's the word of God. You're not searching it for uh, authoritative guidance about your life. Well, uh, it does provide some guidance whether you think it's infallible or not. Um, and, and there's a lot of uh, literary beauty in it, almost independent of which translation you read. Um, but um, it might seem like you're, you're just uh, proceeding on the basis of inertia. Why don't you just give up the whole Bible thing? Because the thing that brought you to it is gone. Uh, that original interest, it just doesn't really make any difference. Uh, that's sort of a genetic fallacy. It doesn't really matter why you got into it if uh, if there's your present pursuit is itself rewarding uh, and edifying. And uh, that's my approach as the Bible geek. And I imagine it is yours or you wouldn't be uh, listening. Uh, much less sending questions, which I hope you'll continue to do. I do have enough uh, in the rain barrel for another podcast or two, but I'm dependent upon your sending them more and more in all the time. I don't think I need to worry about that very much. Um, uh, yeah, one other thing, there's the uh, ever-present uh, question of self-promotion, as shameless as it may be. Uh, I have a book coming out in, next month in September um, called uh, Judaizing Jesus, uh, which challenges the scholarly consensus of today that Jesus must assume, be assumed from the outset to have been an observant uh, sort of Pharisaic Second Temple period uh, Jew. And uh, I try to show how uh, that is uh, mass of circular arguments and is really the result of a, uh, a determination to start out with that assumption. Uh, of course, it's always good to pick a, an assumption in the sense of a, a proposition and you know, see how it stacks up with, with the evidence. Uh, see if it provides a paradigm that makes better sense of, uh, of the textual data. So, yeah, but, but you should look at that as a working hypothesis, not as a dogma. And I, I think that it has become a dogma. And uh, why is that? Well, because uh, of the uh, theological interests of two groups uh, that overlap. Uh, one is um, the, the, the partisans of ecumenical interfaith dialogue. Now, I'm a big fan of uh, interfaith dialogue, uh, especially Jewish and Christian dialogue, which is in view here. Uh, I think that uh, the uh, um, thoroughly Jewish uh, Jesus uh, is uh, kind of a bargaining chip, a construct for liberal ecumenical Christians to say, hey, look, we're not that far apart when in fact they are kind of far apart. Why isn't it enough to respect one another's religions? Do you have to start, you know, giving up the store uh, to, to evacuating your own religion so the members of another will like you? I, I don't really care for that. Um, but then the second one is conservative Christians who uh, want to see Christianity as a natural outgrowth of Judaism without 
pollution, as they would see it, from other ancient religions like Gnosticism, Hermeticism, Mithraism, and so forth. Uh, and they, oh, no, 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 uh, for them, uh, a thoroughly Jewish Jesus is just uh, the Old Testament leading into the New. Uh, it all comes from uh, from the, the uh, Jewish Bible, uh, no admixtures from without, because they know that implies syncretism and that the whole thing is a human-created edifice of, of beliefs, and they don't like that. They want it to be uh, uh, infallibly inspired by God, like the Koran, uh, because that's the only way they can excuse themselves from just using plain old reason to uh, to decide the issues that concern them uh, and uh, issues about invisible matters, you know, heavenly destiny, uh, eschatology, Christology. And it's not because they're too lazy to think. Uh, no, uh, rather they want an authoritative scripture because uh, they don't want to rest content with theories. That wouldn't really be much better than the syncretism alternative, right? Uh, even if uh, your theories are simply theories about how to interpret the Bible, you're, to admit that is to admit a heavy admixture uh, of necessary reason in interpreting it and given what reason is, you can't really have settled conclusions about very many things, especially in this field. Uh, and uh, on the other hand, they're afraid God is an irate theology professor. Uh, if you, He's going to give you a theology final exam. Uh, the, there's an there's old joke where this kid sees his grandfather uh, sitting on a park bench uh, feverishly reading the Bible. And he's surprised, and he goes home to his mother and says, Mom, I didn't know Grandpa was uh, that uh, interested in the Bible. What what happened? And he says, well, honey, he's cramming for his finals. Yeah, that's what people think, that God is going to give you a theology exam, and uh, you've got to get the right answers, uh, or you're going down the chute into the inferno. Uh, which is a weird kind of perverse Gnosticism. Uh, but that's what they think. I mean, if you say, you know, I believe in Jesus, he's my savior, but I don't think the Trinity makes much sense. Huh, I'm sorry, you you can't be a real Christian in that event. You're going to hell. Uh, what the heck? Uh, the, it just corrupts the, the whole uh, intellectual enterprise. And... Um, uh, so, but that's one reason people want to say, oh, it's infallible, and that's why we're interested in it, the divine answer book. Well, it isn't, uh, and that's the big problem, that any kind of genuinely critical approach to the Bible soon reveals. All right, uh, what say we... Oh, yeah, yeah, I mentioned the, the book, uh, right, uh, with less of a diversion on the other ones, uh, I am told that m my book, Merely Christianity, should come out in January, and I'm not quite sure when when Gospels Collide is coming out, but uh, that shouldn't be too far in the future. And I'm now working on one called uh, Christology and Mythology. So, should be loads of fun reading, and uh, sure is fun writing them. So, what about our first of many questions? 
this comes from Vance, also known as the Moon Dog. That was the name of John Lennon's first rock group, right? Johnny and the Moon Dogs. Anyway. Uh, do you think that back in the times at the beginnings of Christianity, there was an organization or brotherhood similar to the modern-day Masons that ran parallel to Judaism and later to Christianity that served as an incubator for the kinds of syncretic ideas that seemed prevalent in the unorthodox sects of that era? This might explain how the myths from so many different civilizations and religions of the past became blended together into the different Gnostic sects, uh, even making their way into mainstream Christianity. Maybe in the case of Christianity, instead of being centered around stonemasons, it started as a carpenter's guild. Have you heard of any records of ancient brotherhoods of this type that could be responsible for the mashups? Um, actually, I don't think that would have been necessary, and I don't think there's evidence for it. Uh, my uh, friend and uh, late colleague, Acharya S. D.M. Murdoch, thought that there was a kind of a secret parliament of religions uh, that uh, was hammering together elements of different religions. I just don't see any reason to think that, it, and it's unnecessary. It, it's like saying that the uh, all the crime and stuff in the world is, is the product of the Illuminati, and uh, that if we didn't have those ultra-rich, ultra-secret masters of the world, uh, things would be fine. Uh, you don't really need that to explain uh, a lot. I mean, I don't know, that's almost the case with some of these uh, you know, big wigs that, that do run a lot of things, but you don't really need it to explain why there's a lot of crime and tyranny and so on. Those things kind of sprout up spontaneously, and it seems to me the history of religion showed that simple contact between members of different religions, especially conversions of members of one religion into another, bringing some of their old beliefs with them, is enough to explain syncretism. Uh, people, uh, I mean, it's all over the place today. You have uh, supposed Christians that believe in reincarnation and stuff like that, uh, uh, my friend uh, Catherine Groves edits the Christian New Age Quarterly, for which I write sometimes as well, um, where where it, it, you can tell there's this ongoing uh, exchange of ideas between believers in different camps, and the and the the subtitle of the Christian New Age Quarterly is um, a bridge su supporting dialogue. Uh, well, yeah, um, that, that's kind of the idea of this, but even there, it's spontaneous and popular. There's no board that does this or anything. So I think uh, people get wind of stuff and say, well, that strikes me as true. Uh, I think I'm going to make room for that in my otherwise traditional Christian or Jewish or whatever views. But there was something like a part of what you're saying from what we hear in ancient sources, and Hugh Schoenfield uh, does a good job with this in the Passover plot, uh, there were uh, these pre-Christian Nazareans, 
uh, Nazarean meaning something like uh, keepers, keepers of what? Uh, well, of the secrets or of the the, uh, the Torah, I'm not quite sure. Uh, and uh, they uh, appear to have been a kind of gypsy-like troupe that traveled around uh, and uh, made a living by carpentry, handymen and all this kind of thing. And, uh, you know, that, and, and he speculates that, uh, not unreasonably, that uh, Jesus the Nazarene would have had something to do with this group. Uh, they weren't from Nazareth. It had a different, uh, different route. Uh, and um, so there might have been that, uh, and uh, they could have been responsible for some of the the ideas that wind up in Gnosticism and uh, Jewish Christianity and so forth. But uh, the, even there, the range would be, uh, the sphere of influence would probably be somewhat restricted. But it was part of a wider world, a part of Hellenistic uh, cosmopolitanism, where you almost could not help but know about other religions, and um, this is why, uh, like the Maccabees were, the Maccabean brothers, the Hasmoneans were so uh, determined to uh, stop Hellenization of Judaism, because uh, the Seleucid Empire, Hellenistic Syrians, were trying to um, to Hellenize Judaism to the point of saying, well, Dionysus and Jehovah, they're really the same, and uh, so forth. And they didn't uh, like this, uh, these these very strict traditionalist Jews. But you see, they wouldn't have had a job to do had this not been a very widespread tendency. Uh, they correctly saw, I think, that the more Jews assimilated to their Gentile environments, adopting Gentile social mores and uh, dietary uh, customs and so on, uh, the less Jewish they would be in practice, and eventually with intermarriage, especially goodbye Judaism. And, and of course, Jews uh, are, are rightly sensitive to that today. I mean, at first you might hear about that and think, well, they're, they're just bigots or something. They, they don't want to open the door to anybody else. That's uh, not quite true. Uh, no, uh, it's, uh, it's, in fact, I think it's not true at all. Uh, someone is, is mistaking for racism what is simply a sound survival instinct. We don't want to, uh, to dissolve our culture and faith in the wider world. It has treasures that will be forfeited if we do that. I, I see that, and uh, I think that's a valid uh, caution. Uh, but there's plenty of uh, other means of and reasons for syncretism, and always have been. I don't think we need one particular guild to, uh, to explain it. Thank you, Vance. See, uh, here's one from our friend Luther. Got a few from him. I'm glad he keeps us in questions. So I began Gerd Tyson's uh, introduction to the New Testament, English translation, 2003, the other day, and something said in passing reminded me of a question I've had lingering in the back of my mind for a long time. It seems that mainstream critical scholars almost always say Matthew and Luke used Mark 
Q and the M and L sources, respectively, with those latter two describing material unique to those Gospels as opposed to what is taken from Mark and Q. Just a little reminder in case anybody needs it, um, Mark, of course, is, is pretty much our present Gospel of Mark, maybe with some changes um, that we have to just speculate about. Um, Q uh, for Kvela or source document, uh, this is just the, uh, the tag given to whatever other common source Matthew and Luke both used. Uh, both have used most of Mark's gospel, though tinkering with it more or less significantly here and there. Uh, but they, they also uh, overlap on a whole bunch of sayings that are not in Mark. Well, where'd they get those? The differences between Matthew's and Luke's versions of these basically common sayings are like the differences you can spot between Matthew's and Luke's use of Mark. So it seems like, it implies that it was a second underlying source whether uh, an oral collection that people just remembered, that's not, I mean, that seems unlikely to me, but it's not impossible, uh, or a written one. Uh, and it may have been in Aramaic and some of the differences between the Greek versions of them and Matthew and Luke may come from just different translation choices. Okay, now what is M? Well, there's a lot of stuff in Matthew that you can't find in Mark uh, or Luke, uh, or Q, however you want to, you know, slice it up. It's it's only in uh, in Matthew. Same thing with the L source. I'm sorry, that's that's the so-called M source. Now the uniquely Lucan stuff, of which there is also quite a bit, uh, that goes under the name of L, uh, obviously, right? Because we don't really know who wrote them or, or whatever. Um, and uh, and so most scholars go along with the, this two-document, four-source, uh, as it's sometimes called, uh, model that Mark existed alongside Q, Mark being a narrative with uh, a bunch of sayings in here and there, um, Q being virtually all sayings, a kind of a Jesus book of Proverbs, you might say. Uh, and uh, then Matthew and Luke each separately used both of these presumably well-known sources, Mark and Q. So, uh, but they, they're so different beyond that, we just call M the extra stuff that only Matthew has, and L the extra stuff that only Luke has. Now, um, uh, let me get back to, uh, to Luther's question before I further confuse things. Why is it assumed that they each used some third source, M or L, as opposed to just writing that unique material, creating it? The thought that comes to me is that they don't want to paint these late first century writers as inventing content, but rather they prefer to give them the 
pro-Christian benefit of the doubt of using old source material that had more basis in the actual history, or at least goes closer to the events. Is that too cynical a perspective? Are there better reasons to assume M and L were actually primarily from source material as opposed to being originally composed by Matthew and Luke, respectively? I don't think it's cynical. I, I That is my belief. I mean, there may have been some uh, material. For instance, there are sayings attributed to Jesus quoted in some of the apostolic fathers, so-called agrapha, misleadingly, because that would mean the unwritten sayings, but they call them that because they're not written in any gospel we, we possess. Uh, and yeah, there's about 10 or 12 of them, I guess, uh, just little nuggets. Uh, like one of them um, is, uh, he who is, who, who is near me is near the fire but he who is far from me is far from the kingdom. Uh, another one uh, is, um, what in whatever I find you doing when I come, in that will I judge you. That's a kind of a scary apocalyptic thing. Um, there's a fascinating little book, kind of old now, by Joachim Jeremias called Unknown Sayings of Jesus. There are two different uh, editions of it. The, the second one has a few more sayings added and cuts a couple of the earlier ones. And he explains why he thinks they are or are not genuine sayings of Jesus. Uh, they're both uh, interesting works, and there are other ones too, but uh, uh, the, uh, uh, let's see, uh, so yeah, there, there could have been, no doubt, or a f like floating traditions like the woman taken in adultery, uh, that's gospel-worthy for sure, but it wasn't in the original manuscripts of any of the canonical gospels. Uh, it was added uh, to uh, the Gospel of John by one scribe, and uh, other scribes added it two or three different places in the Gospel of Luke. And it's pretty obvious that's because it was circulating by itself. And people said, wow, that is good. Uh, let's, let's not lose that. And so some scribe kind of decided, well, let me insert it into a gospel. What the heck? And of course, we're glad he did. It's pretty great stuff, right? Um, but I think on the whole, the uh, additional material of which there is quite a lot in Luke and Matthew bears the marks of, of the redactional patterns of both evangelists. Uh, and certain agendas. Like, it, it seems very clear to me that all these parables that Luke has, the Pharisee and the publican, the, the friend who comes at midnight asking for, for bread to feed uh, somebody that just surprised him uh, at the front door, uh, the, uh, the prodigal son, the lost coin, um, oh boy, uh, the... Uh, uh, various other ones, but uh, the, did I mention the Good Samaritan? Uh, that one as well. There's a, a definite pattern in these things where uh, you have a, a more involved plot 
uh, not that the others are totally without it, but the, these they're more like real stories. And uh, they have um, um, little marks such as often the main character, we eavesdrop on his thought process, and he says to himself, what shall I do? Ah, I will do so-and-so. When the, the prodigal son says, here I am, living in squalor, eating what the pigs eat, uh, uh, and he says, so what shall I do? Ah, I'll go home to my father, uh, and uh, he can hardly forgive me for the mess I've made of myself. I think the prodigal's name was Hunter or something. Anyway, um, and, uh, and so maybe he can't forgive me, I'm sure of that. I wouldn't dare ask that, but maybe he'd hire me as one of his laborers. At least I'd be better off than I am here. Uh, the uh, parable of the, un of the dishonest steward, uh, the uh, the uh, lord of his boss, anyway, uh, uh, says, I uh, am hearing bad things about you, that you're, uh, you're, you're taking a cut of this stuff, you're, you're cheating me, you're fired. Um, by, be out of here by the end of the week. And he says, oh my gosh, what shall I do? I I'm too uh, weak to go dig ditches. Uh, uh, oh, I know. I'll go to the creditors and start uh, auditing, uh, uh, altering the bills so that they don't owe as much as they actually do, and maybe they'll say, hey, that guy's good. I think I want to hire him, but keep an eye on him. Uh, and uh, there's uh, the, there are various other ones like that. And why is that there, but not in any other gospel in its parables? And uh, it just seems to me that, yeah, these, uh, th this is the creation of a single author. It's just not Jesus, it's Luke. Uh, with um, Matthew, there's more of a preoccupation in his unique material with the niceties of Jewish law and custom. Like, uh, can you, is it binding if you swear by the temple, but not on the, by the gold of the temple and stuff? What? Uh, and, and, uh, the, the, you better listen to what the Pharisees, the, uh, the scribes say, because they, uh, occupy the the uh, seed of Moses. So do what they say, but don't do what they do because they're hypocrites. Um, now that's interesting. Uh, he's obviously a Jewish Christian to the point where he acknowledges the institutional authority of current Judaism, but he's still in competition with them. Uh, and uh, the, the, he has twice as many denunciations of the Pharisees as Q did and that Luke uh, had. And, uh, and some of them have to do with these more picky sounding things. Uh, it just uh, seems to me, yeah, more than likely, uh, you've got uh, two creative writers who did rely heavily on Mark and Q but uh, we're winging it on the rest of it. Uh, and, and I think you're right. Uh, the reason that mainstream scholars don't like that, though I can hardly believe when I read the Jesus seminar materials about how uh, surely Jesus said stuff like the parable of the 
prodigal son and the good Samaritan. Come on, surely you can see that's wrong. Uh, so yeah, I, I think that even there, there is uh, an urgency to have uh, Jesus, the most liberal Jesus possible, uh, as the historical Jesus, so you can invoke him as a kind of biblical authority you no longer accord to the Bible itself as a whole. So I think uh, you're quite right, Luther. I think your suspicions are completely justified. Yeah. Uh, this from Tom Shannon, a longtime listener and reader. Oh, great and powerful geek. Uh, my very Catholic grandmother used to keep a portrait of Jesus on the wall of every house I remember her living in. Like the typical portraits I was used to seeing elsewhere, this was of a scruffy, sunburnt Jesus mid-guffaw. My grandmother would say, the Bible never says Jesus laughed, but it never says he didn't either. I bet you that was uh, this this painter, uh, Richard something Hook, uh, who uh, whose uh, Jesus pictures were just as you're describing, and they were real popular in Christian bookstores in the 70s. I don't know if they still are or not. I have one in the closet that I got back then. Uh, um, she also had the infamous Footprints poem. Uh, let's, uh, I don't know if I can get to that from here, but it's on Wikipedia. Uh, wherein the speaker, walking through life with Jesus, looks back at the rough times and sees only a single set of footprints in the sand. Turns out Jesus was piggybacking the speaker when there was only one set of footprints. Um, uh, and as uh, it reminded me of the Acts of John 93. Quote, and oftentimes when I walked with him, I desired to see the print of his foot, whether it appeared on the earth, for I saw him as it were lifting himself up from the earth, and I never saw it. That is the footprint. Uh, I may be, re that's real docetism, right? He, he didn't have a physical presence on earth, it's just sort of a hologram or something. I may be reaching with this, but I wonder if the apocryphal acts of John had seeped into popular culture with the Footprints poem acting as a kind of retort to the docetism uh, presented there. I was also wondering if you might know of any other instances where the apocrypha or accreted legends show up in popular culture. Oh, uh, let's see. Uh, I doubt if there's a connection, uh, because I, I just don't think that people would have come up with that sort of smarmy devotionalism, uh, would, would have any interest in these ancient uh, heretical sources. Uh, but I, uh, it, it's like you could have a, uh, there's a real great cynical, sarcastic version of this in The Onion somewhere. Um, but uh, I can't remember, remember it well enough to, to uh, repeat it at the moment, but um, I, I doubt they'd know it. I think it's a fortuitous uh, thing. It also reminds me of um, an M.R. James ghost story. I think it's the one called 
Oh, whistle and I'll come to you, my lad, uh, where you start seeing footprints in the beach sand, though no one is visibly walking there. Uh, pretty spiffy. So I kind of doubt it. And as for other things in pop culture, um, I uh, can't really think of it, though Hook's pa paintings seem to uh, have the fellowship of Christian athletes, Jesus, a big, uh, husky, muscled guy. And, well, he was a carpenter. I'm not so sure of that, but but that's that's kind of like that. I I don't know though. I I can't really think of uh, anything like that. Yeah, if anybody else can, I'd I'd love to hear it. So please fill me in. Okay, uh, Luther also says I've just finished Rudolf Bultmann's short book, Primitive Christianity, in its contemporary setting, and its heavy emphasis on Gnosticism as an influence on primitive Christianity jumped out at me, uh, really irritating a sore spot I've had for a while. During your discussion slash debate with Dr. Ehrman a few years back, where I sat gleefully in the venue watching, um, let's see, I have trouble with scrolling here. Uh, Dr. Ehrman made a point that while it used to be true that critical scholars agreed with your position that Gnostic ideas predated Christianity, eh, nobody thinks so anymore. And Dr. Ehrman, whom I really enjoy, is certainly as good an example of a consensus scholar as I can see among public-facing critical scholars. And uh, sure enough, I keep coming across matter-of-fact references to pre-Christian Gnosticism, whether in Bultmann or John Knox, uh, referencing Bruce Metzger, ironically enough, considering what I said earlier in the question. Bruce Metzger was, of course, the doctoral supervisor for the mentor of, of Bart Ehrman uh, and was a staunch evangelical. My question is, when and why did critical scholars shift positions and begin dating Gnosticism as a post-Christian constellation of beliefs? I frame it that way because obviously I understand there was no church of Gnosticism with a set of doctrines and creeds, but rather a collection of general ideas that were each different in some ways, but had characteristics we, characteristics we have since identified as Gnostic. Um, I'm not sure uh, if this was it, but in the late 60s in Messina, Italy, there was this big international conference on Gnosticism, and they tried to get everybody to agree on uh, certain uh, uses of words so everybody would be on the same page, like gnosis, gnosticizing, um, pre-gnostic, gnostic, and stuff like that. Uh, that was already, I think, uh, getting a bit too uh, picky. Um, uh, it was like uh, a step away from from uh, the, the trees so that you only saw the forest. I know it sounds just like the opposite, 
but I think that they you're 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 getting too close to the forest. I mean, I, I should have said that uh, that you're now seeing individual trees, and that some of them are different. But you're you're uh, sort of leaving out of out of account the the great forest made up of many of these trees and other kinds of trees, and this uh, has gone to an extreme today with Karen King and others saying there was no Gnosticism. Uh, there, it's like, like you said, a collection of emphases and all that. I do not understand that. Um, Bentley Layton points out, he's another contemporary scholar, he points out that uh, there are some groups that actually did call themselves Gnostics, but some didn't, but scholars tend to lump them together. Well, Karen King and others have gone beyond that. To, if, I, if I understand this right, and, and it's so mystifying to me, I may not, uh, but they're, they're uh, saying that Gnostic was kind of a uh, polite way of saying heretic, uh, and uh, a word people don't like to use anymore either, because that implies a value judgment. Uh, well, it originally didn't, if that matters to you. Uh, it just means choice, uh, one who made a choice, a heretic, uh, based on the Greek word hieresis, choice, which also can be translated as sect. But in either case, the, the uh, implication is the same. The idea is that instead of just being spoon-fed dogma by a religious institution, you, as Kant said, dare to know. You have the effrontery, as the authorities perceived it, to decide for yourself what you think uh, in, in religious matters. And oh, no, that, who could have given you an idea like that? Oh, I don't know, could it have been Satan? Uh, and so uh, I, I see what they're getting at, but I, I don't, if they look at the root of the word, there's nothing uh, untoward about it. Uh, and uh, it, it just seems to me that, yeah, there are identifiable Gnostic groups and thinkers that have an awful lot in common, though there are many variations on the theme. If you're going to say there's no Gnosticism, you might as well say there's no such thing as Buddhism or Islam or Christianity or Presbyterianism, right? Because each one is a kind of a collective uh, and, and each is an ideal type. Helmut Kester, to my surprise, in his New Testament introduction said, he came very close to saying there really was no such thing as a mystery religion. Oh, to hell with that. Of course there were. And that means initiation religions. And they, they had different deities into whose uh, salvific passion, uh, one was initiated and all that, but they, they all had very similar aspects. And uh, an ideal type is like a kind of a textbook abstraction. You uh, look at a bunch of things that have common features, a noticeable number of them, and uh, you isolate an abstraction of what the feature is. Like, do they have a savior God? Do they have initiation rites? Did they believe in a post-mortem ascent through uh, uh, 
spirits or gods who would bar the way, but your initiation gives you the knowledge to evade them. Uh, is that, uh, does it, do you have, can you find various sects or cults that have these things in common? Well, yeah, you can. They don't have everything in common. Uh, the, the point of an ideal type is it's a textbook abstraction. Uh, and uh, it's, uh, in fact, scholars have the same problem defining religion. What is a religion? Boy, they, each one differs so much from the other. Uh, maybe there's no definition. Yeah, come on. There is an ideal type of religion where you, you uh, set forth the features they have in common, even though they're not exactly alike. Do they have some sort of a God concept? Maybe a trinity, maybe an divine ancestors, maybe nirvana, whatever. Is there some kind of a thing that would fit that slot? Uh, is there a predicament from which salvation is sought? Uh, it could be sin, it could be craving, it could be ignorance, who knows, but you can find something that fits in there. Now, is there a way of getting out of that problem? Well, yeah, there's the Eightfold Path, there's accepting Jesus, there is uh, uh, embracing Islam, and so on and so on. Uh, it, it seems to me absurd and silly to say that uh, there there's no such thing as a religion, or Gnosticism, or a mystery religion. And uh, what you do is to use the ideal type as a kind of a yardstick, uh, so that by showing what they have in common, that will help you understand what they don't have in common. If they're so similar, at least analogous, in this, that, and the other respect, but not in the next one. If they have something in categories A, B, and C, but not in D, why would that be? You know, what caused them to differ? Then you're going to find out something uh, that makes that religion distinctive, and so on. So this is a useful thing that I think people are, are somehow forgetting about. Uh, they want to say, if all oh, the differences are greater than the similarities. Uh, what the heck? That's baloney. Uh, but even if it were true, uh, the point is the similarities are, uh, are very important. They don't prove dependence, right? They don't prove one religion copied another, though they might have at least in some respects, but it doesn't prove it. That's not the point. Um, rather, it's, uh, it's like structuralism. Human minds think along the same channels because they're all basically the same machine, right? Uh, and human life in, in cultures, in uh, various living conditions, they pose the same problems and questions with every civilization. And different thinkers within them will try to solve those problems and answer those questions in a way that seems best to them. And so the result is, in each religion, you have the same sort of a range uh, of um, questions and answers. 
uh, and some of those will parallel those of another uh, religion. But it, people are grossly oversimplifying it when they forget about ideal types, which is why some people say, oh, there's no such thing as dying and rising gods. That's baloney. Speaking of that, though, the, what, what about the dating of Gnosticism, as you, you point out? Well, the... the uh, the older scholars like Bultmann, uh, Reitzenstein, and uh, though uh, Bousset and various ones, Gunkel, these guys uh, saw similarities that, it, given the geography of the situation and the historical order of appearance, it, it seemed implicit that some of these did evolve from, from uh, one another. Uh, and so in cases like that, when they're Gnostic, uh, you can say, well, yeah, there's... Uh, like, look at the Nag Hammadi texts. You have Hermetic texts, uh, Platonic uh, texts right out of uh, uh, the, the, uh, the old dialogues. Uh, you have... Uh, uh, Jewish Christian material. You have Sethian Gnostic and, and Valentinian Gnostic texts. Uh, and uh, so it kind of shows you, it's sort of like a living zoo of the various uh, types of theology that got, uh, that, that uh, formed tributaries to the Gnostic stream. And uh, it's a, I guess it is an open question as to when it happened, but if I understand Bultmann right, um, what it, what the, these guys did was to say, what seems to be the trajectory of evolution and influence here? Um, and it looks like, and Harnack said this also, he said it looks like ancient Christianity had three different roots to it, basic ones from uh, the hero cults, where people worshipped Hercules and others. Uh, they derived the idea of an epic of adventures so that uh, Jesus or Apollonius of Tyana or others are walking around over the earth doing, you know, this is a job for Jesus or Superman or Apollonius. And so he's doing all kinds of good deeds and miracles and people are amazed. Uh, that's part of it. That's where you get the narrative. Um, what about uh, the um, the Christology of uh, early Catholicism and even Christianity today, where you have an earthly, visible man, uh, whether it's a hallucination like in Gnosticism or the real thing like in Orthodox Christianity, you have uh, a Savior present among people on earth, uh, but... Behind him stands a heavenly prototype uh, that has come to earth in this form. Where would you get that? Well, he says that you sure see a lot of that in Gnosticism, where much more is made of it. Uh, and uh, so it, it kind of seems like uh, that uh, you uh, that this was derived from Gnosticism. It's, we meet it in a kind of a vestigial form in Christianity. And the third one was, uh, uh, was sacramentalism, rituals of initiation and salvation, 
not open to outsiders, but the initiation made you a full member of the group and enabled you to participate in the saving death or struggle or whatever of the dying and rising God. Uh, well, we uh, see fragments of that, that that don't seem to fit Judaism as we we know it from that period. But like the, this is my body, this is my blood, eat and drink, etc. Whoever does not uh, eat my flesh and drink my blood has no life in him. There's no way. There's no kind of Judaism we ever heard of where that could be said. Uh, but you got loads of examples among the mystery religions. Right? And that's because they evolved from fertility cults where the, the, the bread and wine were the, um, the body and blood of the grape, hence of Osiris and Dionysus and so on. Well, that's been put into a superficially Jewish framework uh, by placement in, uh, in um, Matthew, Mark, and John, and actually stated as such in Luke, I have much desired to eat this Passover with you. There's nothing about the description of the meal that implies it's a Passover, but uh, the fact that it's kind of shoehorned in there meant that uh, they wanted to keep this sacrament that had been uh, derived from the mystery religions, because no doubt there were plenty of converts from them, and this was an important thing to them. Uh, but uh, generally speaking, that uh, their, their co-religionists, uh, fellow early Christians, were much influenced by Judaism, so this is what we mean by syncretism. Uh, you would have the... Uh, the uh, elements of the different religions that no longer seem to fit, but they did in an earlier faith uh, that we know they had contact with. Uh, so it seems to me, and the same thing is true with Zoroastrianism. I see now that uh, Bart Ehrman is denying that uh, Zoroastrianism was an influence on post-exilic Judaism. That astonishes me. Uh, that's been uh, pretty much taken for granted by Old Testament scholars for a long time, and it's easy to make the case for it. You've heard me make it more than once. So it seems to me uh, it's, the, it's apologetics that make conservative scholars want to find Gnosticism uh, and mystery religions as post-Christian developments copying Christianity. It's just a modern version of the old bunk that some of the church fathers said that, uh, uh, yeah, yeah, there were earlier things, uh, dying and rising gods, sacraments, uh, all that stuff, earlier than Christianity, but that was because uh, Satan knew the real thing was coming and decided to counterfeit him in advance to throw you off the trail once Jesus came. And uh, a more modern version of that was to say, well, you know, they couldn't quite do the, the devil thing. So what they did was to say, oh, well, um, uh, suppose uh, Gnosticism and the mystery religions uh, didn't exist beforehand, or if they did, they didn't have these features. Maybe they were just like Cub Scout troops or uh, the Optimist Club or something. Or a Weight Watchers group, and and later they borrowed these things. Get out of here! 
uh, it, it just seems to me absurd. And uh, so I think that's what's going on with, with all of that. Jonathan, Jonathan Z. Smith was no evangelical, nonetheless, for politically correct reasons, if I mind reading him correctly, uh, attacked the idea that there ever were dying and rising gods in a wholly implausible argument I have dealt with in uh, more than one of my books. But, uh, but in fact, there were churches of Gnosticism. Uh, the Valentinians, there were Eastern and Western branches of that. I mean, that was a very uh, evolved, developed religious movement, but they they uh, didn't have their own houses of worship. Um, Irenaeus was upset that these people remained in his type of congregations without explicitly saying what they believed because they knew they'd get in trouble for it. And he wished he could smoke them out and get rid of them, but they were pretty crafty. Uh, and... Um, uh, but uh, you you did have a Marcionite church, and that is has important traits in common uh, with uh, uh, with Gnosticism, and is sometimes considered a, a branch of it. Uh, the in the third century, that is the two hundreds, Mani, who considered himself a he, he referred to himself as Mani, the apostle of Jesus Christ. Uh, he believed he was the latest. Paraclete, the latest um, one to uh, channel the Paraclete, uh, and and that he that Zoroaster and the Buddha had earlier done so. Uh, so uh, very fascinating. They had meetings, and of course, Marcionites and Manichaeans were kind of stamped out because they made themselves targets. You could find a synagogue of the Marcionites, as they called it, meeting houses. And so watch out. Okay. Uh, let's see. Um, um, here's one from uh, uh, the Trickster. So feel free to read this in your best Lieutenant Commander Montgomery Scott accent. In a recent episode of the Bible Geek, you were talking about the judgment passage in Revelation 20, and it reminded me of a nagging thought I always have when I hear that, that passage. The passage in question in the, in the New American Standard uh, version says, Then I saw a great white throne in him who was seated upon it. The church and the heavens fled from his presence, and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Another book was opened, which was, is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them and each person was judged according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. Uh, the lake of fire is the second death. Anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. What bugs me every time I hear that passage is the another book, which seems almost totally redundant. 
the passage would make sense if it was omitted uh, uh, thus or in this way. Um, uh, what? I'm having trouble with this uh, mouse scrolling. Here we go. Yeah, uh, this is the way it would make better sense. Then I saw a great white throne in him who was seated on it. The earth and the heavens fled from his presence, and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. That passage sounds fine without the mention of the book of life. Indeed, I think it flows better without the mention of the book of life, do you? The book of life actually makes the whole judgment aspect of the story completely redundant. Uh, what is the point of judging someone according to what is recorded in the original books if their fate is determined by another book? If people are judged based on what they've done, then they're judged based on what they have done, and that is the measure by which their fate is decided. Whether or not they get thrown into the lake of fire depends on what they've done. That is really the only point of the judgment. We even get the example of death and Hades, who appear to be characters, right, oh, yes, being judged and thrown into the lake of fire. No mention of them being in the book of life or otherwise. They're judged on their deeds. Uh, well, uh, let's see here. Oh, yeah. Uh, so the question is this. Surely I'm not the only person to think that the another book is redundant. Have others explored this idea, and where did the exploration take them? I've heard it said by you and others, I think, that Revelation appears to be a Christianized version of an earlier Jewish apocalypse. Is this one of the Christianizing revisions, adding in a get-out-of-jail-free option for those who are saved? Um, let's see here. It, uh... Let's see, let me take another look at this thing uh, standing before it. Another book was opened, which is the Book of Life. Uh, so, uh, books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the Book of Life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. See, yeah. Um, I well, in earlier in the Book of Revelation, uh, the the angel Messiah says that uh, chapter three, I think, uh, that uh, if you uh, straighten up and fly right, I will not blot your name out of the Book of Life. Uh, what is uh, what does that mean? Well, it might mean the the book of the living, because sometimes in various ancient references to it, that is what it means. Like um, in Luke, um, 
Master, the demons obeyed uh, when we cast them out in your name. And he says, well, that's good, but don't rejoice in this. Rejoice rather that your names are written in the book of life. Does that mean you have salvation or you should just be glad to be alive? I, I don't know. I don't know. But the in itself, it could mean either one. Uh, I'm tempted to say that in the passage you're quoting, the um, it would make sense if the book of life were one of the books rather than another book beside the two. Presumably, the two books uh, are the um, the record of the deeds. Wait a minute now. Wait a second. Well, I guess the thing that makes the most sense to me is to see the the two books. Oh, wait a minute. Wait a second. I just want to make sure I'm not misreading this because of what I used to think it said. Books were open. Well, it doesn't say there are two books to begin with, which might, if, if that were the case, perhaps it would mean... Okay, book A is uh, the good guys and book B is the bad guys. It might simply mean that uh, these are the files on everybody and it's more than one book. Uh, and uh, that's and that uh, that doesn't have verdicts yet. It has the deeds simply. Uh, there's a scene in a Twilight Zone episode like this where uh, Rocky Valentine thinks he's in heaven, but he's really in the other place. He thinks he's in heaven being rewarded. And so uh, Sebastian Cabot takes him to this huge hall of records and they take out his file and he looks through it and everything in it is bad and he says she would i must have done something good to be here he doesn't yet know where he really is and that he deserves it it could be that and and there's like tier after tier of rows of filing cabinets for everybody it could be something like that that the writer envisions that a whole bunch of ledgers are open for all the different people uh, that are uh, whose works the angels have been uh, transcribing as they watch over you uh, and uh, or spy on you, as the case may be. And the Book of Life is uh, written in at the time, perhaps, uh, where uh, it. Uh, uh, is uh, saying, okay, this guy passes muster here. This guy was good, according to what's written in the books. He's going in the, you know, the guest book here, the register of the saved. The other ones are headed for the second death, because that's the, the big opposition, life and death. Um, it is... Uh, um, Uh, yeah, well, I, I guess I would go with that. If it's not just clumsy writing, the books are, are all like ledgers of what everyone has done. And depending on the assessment, your name d 
does or does not go in the book of life, uh, or if the book of life is um, contains everybody's name, uh, and you have done evil in your life, they scratch your name out as as uh, Jesus angel threatens in the beginning of the book. That's about the best sense I can make of it. That uh, that uh, seems to me to uh, to fit it better than uh, some of these other things. But you got a sharp eye. That's, that's good. Let's see here. Uh, this is John, not the Baptist. Uh, see, I know you're primarily a New Testament scholar, but I'm very curious to hear your thoughts on the Elephantine papyri recovered from the eponymous location in Egypt in 1907 and dating to the 5th century BCE. I have looked for and not found much you've written on the topic. The papyri contain hundreds of everyday documents, official and personal correspondence, loan agreements, marriage certificates, sales receipts, etc., spanning a hundred years or more, and are our best glimpse at what Jewish life was like at the time. However, they also strongly suggest a Jewish community that appears to have little, if any, knowledge of the Torah, and shockingly violate several aspects of Deuteronomic law, such as polytheism. Uh, um... Uh, yet seek and seemingly get permission from priests in Jerusalem to build their own temple. Most of the websites that discuss the papyri are Christian-oriented, and it's clear the only reason the papyri are of any interest is their mention of Sanballat and the high priest Jehohanan uh, from the book of Nehemiah. The Elephantine Pyri Prove the Bible is the title of one such book. The seeming strangeness of this community is chalked up to the fact that they are diaspora and have been corrupted by local customs. I suppose that's possible, but I can't imagine how such a large cache of Jewish documents over that span of years could avoid even a single mention of anything from the Pentateuch. Uh, though they maintain a written correspondence with the temple priests in Jerusalem, they don't seem to have been aware of the stories and traditions that have since defined Jewish culture and tradition. Is it reasonable to conclude that the Pentateuch was not well known to the ordinary Jews at the, the time? Yeah, uh, it, however, is also reasonable to uh, infer that this stuff didn't exist at the time. Uh, that uh, it it was uh, bits and pieces of it, individual stories and laws, um, mutually contradictory, were floating around, but that it was in Egypt, in Alexandria, later than this, uh, some centuries later than this, that all available traditions from different factions were put together, uh, and uh, that this um, marked the... Uh, the, uh, the the so-called deuteronomic reform, which I think occurred much more recently than most do. Uh, and uh, so that, uh, oh, you guys are uh, planning to build a polytheistic temple? Yeah, what the hell? Because they were probably polytheistic in Jerusalem at the time anyhow. Uh, and uh, it, it seems to me that this is pretty darn good evidence that 
uh, that uh, they weren't heretics. There was just no orthodoxy at the time, and that the uh, the Pentateuch had not even been compiled. Again, again uh, the uh, some bits and pieces that wound up in the Pentateuch no doubt existed, but the the whole thing, uh, uh-uh. and. Uh, so uh, I, that's, I think it goes even farther than you're suggesting, John, but I'm glad you're, uh, you, you're uh, on the right track here. Oh, let's, oh, here's an interesting one from Kurt Underwood. After listening to hundreds and hundreds of hours of the Bible Geek, Geek podcast, I can answer nearly every Bible and Judeo-Christian-related question on Jeopardy. Okay, now you see the value of listening to the Bible Geek. That's uh, I tell you one problem, though. Uh, it may or may not help you playing Bible trivia because you may know better than the people that compiled that game. I remember I uh, was playing it with somebody once, and the question was, what's the earliest New Testament book? And I forget what I said, but the, the answer the game gave was the letter of James. Come on. I said, okay, that's it. Forget it. These guys don't know what they're talking about. Uh, I remember the day I was disillusioned by Trivial Pursuit also when uh, they uh, asked, what color is Wonder Woman's bra? And, of course, it's gold or white. Uh, I'm, I'm sorry, it's it's uh, it's gold. Uh, uh, yeah, and but they said it's white. Have you ever read an issue of Wonder Woman or the Justice League? It's gold. So, uh, you know, you got to watch out. Or like on uh, Seinfeld, with when uh, George is playing Trivial Pursuit with the Bubble Boy, uh, the Muslims who invaded Spain, uh, what were they called? The Moors. He says, no, I'm sorry, it says the Moops. Uh, there's no Moops. Oh, sorry, going with what it says. Of course, there's just a typo there, but that's the dilemma one sometimes finds oneself in. Okay, uh, here's more from uh, Luther. Lately, I keep coming across something that's becoming a real pet peeve for me. I'd love you to weigh in. I keep reading and hearing things like, Mark was the first person to write a gospel, instead of, of the gospels we have, we believe Mark's is the first to be written. Or, the first letter Paul wrote was First Thessalonians, as opposed to, of the extant Pauline epistles, First Thessalonians is believed to be the earliest. I see a huge difference between the first and what we believe to be the first of those we have in terms of acknowledging both A, our own conclusions about dating what we have, and B, the fact that we can't know about potential documents that we don't have. Uh, it seems to me that it's dishonest to present a picture as the picture when you're really taking a series of puzzle pieces and laying them out as best you can. Uh, but you know you're probably missing some pieces and are likely putting some of those you do have in the wrong places. Uh, more of a rant than a question, I guess. Am I just a grumpy old man who needs a nap like me? Or am I right to think this sort of language is misleading, especially to general audiences? 
Uh, yeah, I think you are right. I mean, I just gave an example of that fortuitously, and that now all those poor people uh, playing Bible trivia are no doubt going to think James is the earliest New Testament uh, epistle. Uh, that is miseducation. And uh, what they ought to say is most scholars think, uh, but you, you can't, uh, or, or you could say, I think, and here's why. But yeah, this is uh, really a kind of propaganda. Though it sounds, the way they put it, that they're oblivious of what they're doing. Uh, and your theory is not necessarily the truth. The consensus, or what they told you in seminary classroom, is not necessarily the truth. Yeah, I, that, that bothers me. Ooh. Okay, um, another one from our buddy Luther. Oh, wait a minute, is this his? Uh, uh, yeah, okay, okay. This is another one from Luther. You see, there's an authorship of an epistle issue right there. Okay. Um, lately, I keep coming across something that's becoming a real... Wait a minute. Now, this is the one I... Sheesh. Okay, this is from Brian H. in New Hampshire. Uh, see, one topic has appealed to me for years now, uh, but somehow it only ever comes to mind while I'm reading something, and by the time I get done with whatever I was reading, I've forgotten until the next time around. So before I forget again, I'm rereading Burton Mack's Myth of Innocence, which I read right as I was getting interested in these topics over a decade ago, but frankly, that reading might be better described as looking at the ink on the pages of. And when he brought up the Son of Man, I remembered, and yes, now I finally get to the question. Is there a particular book you'd recommend that gets into the usage of the term Son of Man? Uh, what is it known to mean when uh, what people speculate it means, how all that works in the context of what a historical Jesus might have thought about, etc. I'd love to have a good resource about it. Um, yeah. Yeah, okay. It, um, I would recommend um, Gaze of Vermesh. That's G-E-Z-A, uh, last name V-E-R-M-E-S, Jesus the Jew. Uh, he has some interesting stuff to say about Aramaic usage of the, of the phrase Son of Man and how it doesn't necessarily constitute a title, much less a messianic one. Another book uh, is Maurice Casey, C. A case with a Y on the end, called The Son of Man, which deals with uh, all known Jewish literature that use the phrase, uh, the book of Daniel, First uh, Enoch, and various uh, rabbinic sources. And he also concludes it was not a, a title. Uh, let's see, there's a bunch of others that deal with it. I would recommend also my um, Holy Fable, Volume 2, The Gospels and Acts uh, Undistorted by Faith. 
or you might want to read the um, uh, the pre-Nicene New Testament where I explain how I translate it. Uh, because sometimes in, in common usage, it was used as uh, what they call an apotropaic device, a kind of, or another tongue twister, a circumlocution, like talking around something. Like when they would not use the divine name, but something else, like the Blessed One. That's, that's a circumlocution. Uh, the name is too holy to just say it, you know, here and there all the time. Which is why in the life of Brian, that guy was about to be executed. All I said was, this halibut is good enough for Jehovah. Um, well, there are sayings. So, so uh, if somebody was going to talk about impending misfortune, uh, like uh, I got to get a root canal or uh, gee, I have cancer surgery coming up, in Aramaic, they would be saying something like, uh, the Son of Man has uh, has a root canal coming up, uh, or, or uh, you know, the Son of Man is going in for a cancer biopsy. Um, it's like saying, this guy, me. It's similar to, uh, well, yeah, so, so sometimes that would... Uh, uh, that would be the usage, and there are, and the passion predictions might be considered that. And the Son of Man uh, has to be betrayed and fall into the hands of sinners. We're going to beat the hell out of him, crucify him, and so forth. Um, it's like, yeah, you're signaling that it means you, but it's it's sort of like speak of the devil and he'll appear. You, you kind of, you're, you're sort of sort of hoping uh, the finger of fate will pass you by because you didn't actually say I. I think that's the sort of superstitious logic that underlies this usage. You weren't fooling anybody or trying to, but it was just a way of saying, you know, um, uh, God forbid, but I'm gonna, you know, fall prey to this. Then there was a usage where you would be like, let's say, defending yourself by associating yourself with the common run of humanity. Uh, you're off the hook because everybody else is. Like when um, Jesus uh, heals the paralytic, uh, and they say, well, what do you think you're saying? You can't forgive somebody's sins. Only God can. He said, yeah. Uh, so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Hey, you, take up your bed and walk out of here. And he does. Uh, well, uh, everybody's shocked, but they can't argue with what they just saw. But in Matthew, interestingly, uh, the acclamation of the crowd, uh, Matthew adds to it, they praised God that such authority was given to men. Uh, that implies that when he says the, uh, the Son of Man has authority, fellow humans can absolve sins on earth as God does in heaven. So you're wrong. It's not only God who does. After all, Jesus tells the disciples in John chapter 20 that they can remit sins. Uh, or uh, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Uh, Jesus is answering critics and say, oh, what's this? You're letting your men uh, pick grain on the Sabbath? And he, Jesus says, uh, 
the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath, which, by the way, was another version of a common Jewish saying. The Sabbath is given to you, not you to it. Uh, and the idea in both cases was, look, what do you think the Sabbath is? Uh, it, it, whose benefit was it made for? D do you think God created the Sabbath? Said, Boy, what a great idea, a day of rest. But gee, come to think of it, I'm going to need some people who need to rest. Okay, I'll make some human beings for the sake of the Sabbath so we can have some Sabbath observance around here. That's ridiculous. No, it's it's made for the benefit of human beings. And therefore, the Son of Man, human beings, are in charge of the Sabbath. So Jesus isn't pulling rank as the messianic son of man coming in the clouds. He's just saying, hey, look, people are in charge of this. So if it meets people's needs, that's what we're doing. Um, or, well, that's probably good enough. Uh, sometimes, um, uh, well, here's a modern example of, of that that I, I think is good. Well, here's two. Uh, in uh, the great movie about Robert E. Howard called The Whole Wide World, he's, he's frustrated and says to his girlfriend, a man's got to have a reason to live. Well, he's making a statement about general humanity, but of course the reason he's saying it is he's talking about himself and his resolve. I've got to have a reason to live, right? But he puts it in terms of what all men, uh, need. Uh, there's a, um, I don't know if anybody's old enough to remember the Donahue show, uh, but uh, he would bring people on sometimes it was sort of a side show like Oprah. Uh, and uh, he once had this uh, Hasidic couple on there, very, very conservative, straight-edged uh, uh, Orthodox Jews, you might say hyper-Orthodox. And Donahue wanted to check out a rumor he had heard, and he says to the man, is it true that when Hasidic Jews have sex, they uh, do it through a hole cut in a sheet that is put down between them? Uh, and the guy's reaction was, it is an outrage to humanity. And I think Donahue, insensitive clod that he was, uh, didn't understand and thought the man was saying, where did you hear an outrageous slur like that? Of course, it's not true. But in fact, it was true. And the Hasidic Jew didn't mean to deny it. He just is saying, how dare you ask me such a thing in public? It's an outrage to humanity, to the son of man. You don't ask stuff like that in front of a bunch of strangers. Uh, and so you, you can still see that kind of thing going on. Um, now, sometimes there are references, allusions to, the, to Daniel 7, where Daniel sees a vision and it said, I saw one like a son of man coming up from the water and uh, coming with the clouds of heaven to take his seat next to the one who is in Ancient of Days. 
Uh, well, that appears many times, as Casey shows, uh, as, as a kind of an allusion to the coming of the Messiah, though they don't actually say, this is the Messiah. But that, that's kind of the inference. But it's more of a slightly evasive uh, way of referring to it. Uh, and, um, and, and so in the gospel sayings where that is in view, uh, you will see the Son of Man coming with the clouds and seated at the right hand of power. Um, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the other uh, on the earth? Uh, if anyone denies me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes with his Father's glory and the angels and all of that. Notice that that's in the third person. Uh, and uh, in cases like that, in my translation, I add a couple of words, and I say Jesus is saying, uh, the one like a son of man, which both dissociates it from him, as I think it originally was, uh, and shows you, yeah, we're talking about the, the great eschatological uh, redeemer here, whether Jesus or not. Uh, Daniel never said it. Uh, so uh, I think Vermesh is real good and uh, Casey is real good and I would suggest my discussions in um, in the pre-Nicene New Testament and uh, Holy Fable Volume 2. Uh, okay, let's see here. Ah, uh, Luther, I have my scrolling is all fouled up here. Okay, here's a quick one from James Mills in Kentucky. Uh, who or what is Azazel? A-Z-A-Z-E-L. I've heard some pronounce it Azazel. I don't know which is uh, correct. I see it referenced in Leviticus in relation to the scapegoat ritual. It looks like some say Azazel is an evil deity, and some say it is a desolate place. What say you, a wise geek? Um, I think it's it's clearly supposed to be uh, a, an evil god. Demons uh, dwelt in the desert, the wilderness, uh, and there is a, a parallel there. Uh, the one uh, goat to be sacrificed is uh, marked with a tag that says for Yahweh and the other one with a tag that says for Azazel and both are somehow sin bearers for the people on the Day of Atonement. Uh, there is an unbelievably fascinating book by John Dominic Crossan called The Cross That Spoke that gets into a whole tradition of Jewish and early Christian midrashic expansion of the Leviticus uh, passage and shows how it seems to have been historicized in the passion narrative of the Gospels. It is really, really fascinating. It's my favorite book by him. Uh, and uh, so, yeah, I think it's Azazel. Who's, um, uh, later on, I think he's thought to be an angel, but of course that's by the time... Uh, Jewish monotheism has prevailed, and I got to do something else with them. Um, as, 
Uh, here's one last one for today. Uh, also from, oh no, there's two here. Uh, well, here's one from Diogenes of Ephrata. Uh, I was cutting the Bible, you know, opening at random, and landed on 2nd Ezra's 6. Uh, so, of course, you got the Apocrypha there. And what I read really mystified me. Esdras is saying that God created Enoch and Leviathan together on the fifth day, then goes on to say that Adam was finally created on the sixth day. Enoch was created before Adam? What is going on there? Um, and here, here we go, uh, the text. Upon the fifth day thou saidst unto the seventh part, where the waters were gathered, that it should bring forth living creatures, uh, fowls and fishes, and so it came to pass. For the dumb water and without life brought forth living things at the commandment of God, that all people might praise thy wondrous works. Then thou didst ordain two living creatures, the one thou calledest Enoch and the other Leviathan and did separate the one from the other for the seventh part, namely where the water was gathered together might, so that it might not hold them both. Uh, unto Enoch thou gavest one part, which was dried up the third day, that he should dwell in the same part wherein are a thousand hills. But unto Leviathan thou gavest the seventh part, namely the moist, and hast kept him to be devoured of whom thou wilt and when. Uh, he's going to be the main course on, uh, at the Messianic banquet, according to the rabbis. Uh, upon the sixth day thou gavest commandment unto the earth that before thee it should bring forth beasts, cattle, and creeping things. And after these, Adam also, whom thou madest Lord of all thy creatures, of him come we all, and the people also, whom thou hast chosen. Well, uh, it seems to me this is kind of a weird version of the creation of the, the sun and, uh, and Leviathan, uh, because Leviathan is really the personification of the great river Litani in uh, Palestine. Uh, and uh, it had several tributaries, and so this was symbolized as a, uh, a, a sea dragon with seven heads, just like the Hydra and so on. Uh, and uh, so he is like in charge of the sea. Enoch, uh, of course, is a, in, in the book of Enoch, is both a pre-existent being, that son of man, uh, and he is the son uh, so, uh, on the one hand, even if the writer here does not intend him to be the sun, but that kind of fits with the hills, because you see it sink behind the hills and it's, it dries up the plain, right? Even if he's not the sun, it's not a problem that uh, he predates Adam because he is the, uh, he's the heavenly version of uh, the angelic uh, solar Enoch, uh, who in first Enoch is as a man is raised up into heaven to see the secrets of, of uh, the stars and space and the heavenly bodies. And there he sees this incredible 
transfigured uh, human, uh, one like a son of man, as is common to this in Daniel. Uh, and he says, who is he? And the angel tells him, uh, you are that son of man. And he's, he's transfigured into the sun and, and, and into a fiery angel and so forth. Uh, so I, I'm guessing that's what's going on there. However, let me, uh, let me look up. Okay, let's, uh, in verse 35. Now after this I wept again and fasted seven days as before in order to complete the three weeks as I had been told. And on the eighth night my heart was troubled within me again, and I began to speak in the presence of Elian, of the Most High. Uh, for my spirit was greatly aroused, and my soul was in distress. I said, O Lord, thou didst speak at the beginning of creation, and didst say on the first day, Let heaven and earth be made, and thy word accomplished the work. And then the spirit was hovering, and darkness and silence embraced everything. The sound of man's voice was not yet there. Then thou didst command that a ray of light be brought forth from thy treasuries, so that thy works might then appear. Again, on the second day, thou didst create the spirit of the firmament, and didst command him to divide and separate the waters, that one part might move upward, and the other part remain beneath. That is, under the flat earth. Uh, and the firmament, there's a great ocean outside the solid dome of the sky and rain comes down through the windows etc okay um, on the third day thou didst command the waters to be gathered together in the seventh part of the earth six parts thou didst dry up and keep so that some of them might be planted and cultivated and be of service before thee for thy word went forth and at once the work was done for immediately came forth in uh, endless abundance and a varied appeal to the taste. A fruit came forth, uh, endless abundance, varied appeal to the taste, and flowers of inimitable color and odors of inexpressible fragrance. These were made on the third day. On the fourth day, thou didst command the brightness of the sun, uh, the light of the moon, and the arrangement of the stars to come into being and thou didst command them to serve man who was about to be formed. On the fifth day thou didst command the seventh part where the water had been gathered together to bring forth living creatures, birds and fishes, and so it was done. Uh, the, the dumb and lifeless water produced living creatures as it was commanded that therefore the nations might declare thy wondrous works. Then thou didst keep in existence two living creatures. The name of the one uh, uh, thou didst call Behemoth, and the name of the other Leviathan. And thou didst separate one from the other, for the seventh part where the water had been gathered together could not hold them both. And thou didst give Behemoth one of the parts which had been dried up on the third day to live in it, where there are a thousand mountains, but to Leviathan thou didst give the seventh part, the watery part, and thou hast kept them to be eaten by whom thou wilt and when thou wilt.
Uh, let's see here. Yeah, it, it does say that in part of this, uh, the Latin text is obscure. I don't know if that's the part that has to do with the behemoth and Leviathan, but yeah, okay, I suspected something like this. This, what you're reading is, uh, I'm reading out of the Revised Standard Version. I'm sure if you looked at the uh, Jerusalem Bible or uh, the New American Standard, oh, they wouldn't have it. Uh, the, uh, the, uh, well, the New American Bible, not the Standard, uh, or the New English Bible, you would find Behemoth. I don't know what Enoch is doing getting tucked in there, uh, but uh, uh, I... Uh, behemoth is, these are the two great monsters who were mentioned in the last couple of chapters of Job. And uh, behemoth is, to borrow a phrase from Michael Moorcock, the land leviathan. Uh, he's this big monster that lives in on the land where his leviathan sports about in the water. Uh, and um, so uh, there's some kind of copying goof or something there. Uh, so that one, it turns out, is not that tough to uh, to uh, resolve. Uh, let's see. Okay, and finally, this is from our buddy Luther again. Uh, let's see. Uh, these all stem, again, from Gerd Tyson's introduction to the New Testament, uh, directly or indirectly. One, when do you think Christians first considered themselves as having a different religion from Jews? And perhaps leadingly, in terms of what I wonder, do you think that we may not be looking at a splinter, but rather a merger of Jewish sects and Gentile sects that found enough compatibility to join uh, together different uh, disparate groups. Uh, yeah, could be. Um, I would put it a little differently. I think what we're dealing with is a kind of a syncretistic fusion of, uh, of beliefs which may in the first instance have come about because of uh, Gentiles who belonged, who had belonged to, or still belonged to, um, mystery religions, and um, and uh, joined up with with Judaism, which was considered sort of an exotic Oriental religion by Romans, uh, or they and they brought some of their favorite myths with them and rituals, or that, uh, so converts came, uh, bringing their own influence, or that uh, you actually did have sect groups that had a lot in common, merging because they were shrinking, perhaps, as a congregation still do today. And uh, that's uh, that could be what happened. Now, how would uh, Gentiles be interested in Judaism? Well, a whole lot of them were, in fact, uh, unless there was a Jewish war against Rome going on, and there were about three of those surrounding the New Testament period. 
that, that Jews became unpopular then, but otherwise Judaism was quite the thing in many circles. Uh, a lot of people, a lot of Gentiles embraced Judaism. A lot of them adopted particular Jewish customs like uh, the Sabbath. Um, uh, and uh, a lot became God-fearers, the so-called pious or righteous Gentiles, uh, who uh, did not become full proselytes, but were welcomed to attend synagogue uh, and to hear the, the preaching on scripture, because they felt like this is certainly morally superior to the stuff I was raised on with Zeus raping mortal women and so on. So there would have been plenty of occasions for this kind of um, mixing and uh, or Jews becoming Hellenists, like uh, was happening under the reign of Antiochus Epiphanes. Uh, they said, well, uh, Yahweh is really another name for Dionysus, what the heck? Uh, or as the writer of the Epistle of Aristeus said, um, call him Zeus, call him Jehovah, what the, what's the difference? Uh, and if you've got that kind of flexibility, it, it might not be as simple as two particular sects merging, but that wouldn't be surprising, and you would have the same result anyway with other known trends back then. Uh, so, yeah. Uh, let's see. Uh, but, of course, it would have been a splinter group of Jews. I mean, that much is, is, is true. But why did they splinter off, right? Was it because they were getting too Hellenistic for others? Okay, second, how do you understand or explain the lack of first-century Christian text is the war enough to explain it, or is the lack of a prominent Palestinian Christianity possible? Uh, both. And, and in fact, the, uh, the, the uh, wars no doubt contributed to the uh, attrition of Jewish Christianity, though it did stay around for a couple of centuries. Uh, and, uh, and we do know of some of their scriptures that have since been lost, like the gospel according to the Hebrews, the gospel according to the Egyptians, the gospel according to the Nazareans, uh, the gospel according to the Ebionites, and uh, presumably there were uh, more than that. Uh, but it, uh, it, it, has, it, it could be that nobody felt the need for uh, these authoritative written documents yet, uh, partly because it, for, for many early Christians, the scriptures were what we call the Old Testament, and they were happy enough to see Jesus prefigured there. And, uh, and it was only uh, the, uh, something like Marcionism that, where they said, look, this isn't a Christian scripture. Jesus wasn't the Jewish, I'm sorry, yeah, the Old Testament isn't a, a Christian scripture. It's all about Judaism. And, and Jesus uh, was not the Jewish Messiah. He was the, uh, the emissary of a hitherto unknown God of love and forgiveness. Uh, so uh, once that started, that uh, even had a, uh, an influence on the Ebionites, at least Hans-Joachim Sheps argued this, and I think it's pretty convincing. He thinks that, it, that the idea of the false pericopes, uh, the, 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 um, the idea that uh, scribes had added uh, material into 
uh, the the Old Testament that had to do with animal sacrifices and stuff, and that the uh, the Ebionites felt the sting of some of the criticisms of the Old Testament from Marcionites and said, well, uh, they got a real point there, but I'm not ready to uh, throw over the Jewish God, the, the Torah, and so on. How about this? Suppose we conclude that several passages in the scriptures don't really belong there and were s smuggled in. After all, didn't Jeremiah say the falsifying pen of the scribes is adulterated scripture? Uh, right across from the page where he has God say, when I delivered you from Egypt, I gave you no laws about animal sacrifice. <laughs> what? Uh, well, Sheps says he thinks that, yeah, that this was a kind of an accommodation to Marcionism without wanting to sever oneself from Judaism. Could be. Uh, I tend to think that a lot of the um, gospel stories that are so much like Old Testament stories uh, were uh, probably fabricated by Marcionites who did like a bunch of stuff in the Old Testament, but had sort of painted themselves into a corner and couldn't admit they accepted that, so they just retooled the stories to be about Moses, David, Joshua, Elijah, and Elisha, and rewriting them to some degree. Uh, but uh, it's uh, but an, okay. One one other factor here is that Christianity may have started a bit later than we usually think of. Uh, there might not have been uh, Christians in the beginning of the first century. Uh, they or let's say that that the dates for Jesus that we always hear are correct and that there was a historical Jesus and that he said he would be returning as the Messiah and all. Let's assume all of that's true, a fairly conservative version of this. Um, some scholars say, well, these people were much surprised by the delay of the parousia. And uh, as, as time went by and nothing happened, they realized, well, uh, we don't know that it's going to be any time soon if it hasn't happened already. Uh, people who were there at the beginning are dying off. Maybe we ought to write down what we do remember uh, being told about the days of Jesus so that, it, that you wouldn't have had any scriptures, even though you had Christian faith and Christology and tradition, but it would have been passed down by oral tradition until they realized, hey, the, the witnesses of the tradition are dying. We, we better come up with a stopgap. We don't know how long we're going to be stranded here. That also makes sense. So it isn't all that odd in a strange way, or at least it's pretty easy to explain plausibly. Okay, uh, third and final, uh, Gerd Tyson, uh, by the way, if you want to look him up, which is... Uh, Good thing to do. It's T H E I S S E N, not like the boxer who spells it differently. Uh, Tyson describes the messianic secret in Mark as a literary form given to the monotheistic, in quotes, reservations about the life of Jesus bathed in the divine splendor. Uh, okay, uh, the way I understood him, using Vreda, apparently, is that somehow presenting Jesus um, 
liter literarily as not claiming he was divine or God, but rather going through the entire process of life, miracles, death, and resurrection, somehow softened the blow on strict monotheists. Can you either elaborate or offer an alternative understanding of the messianic secret in Mark? Now, what does he say again? The messianic secret was a literary form given to the, quote, monotheistic reservations about a life of Jesus bathed in the divine splendor. I guess so. I, I guess that's what Tyson is saying, but that, that strikes me as implausible, if that is correct, that they're trying to tone it down, de-emphasize it, uh, uh, by, uh, like, the, the point of the, the messianic secret would be contained completely in where, where Jesus stills the storm and the disciples say, who is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Well, the implicit answer is uh, God, that's who it is. But he didn't want to say it because, or Mark didn't want to have the disciples or Jesus say it outright because that might be offensive to, to some. But that that strikes me as kind of weird. I, I really much prefer Breda's theory uh, that uh, or a variation on it that they uh, thought Jesus would soon appear as the Messiah, uh, but he didn't. Uh, or well, let's say, uh, no, I shouldn't say that they thought the Messiah must soon appear. And Breda figured, well, of course, there was a historical Jesus, and uh, but he, he didn't claim to be the Messiah, but like others, he looked forward to the advent of the Messiah. So he died, uh, and uh, people thought they saw him, or there was a resurrection, or whatever you want to say. But they And they figured, well, he's going to be back any time now, and boy, then is he going to kick Roman butt. But time went by, and uh, no Messiah, no second coming of Jesus, which would have been the first coming of Jesus as Messiah, right? Because they had a completely eschatological, apocalyptic understanding of the Messiah. He will bring history to an end as we know it and defeat evil and raise the dead and all of that. Um, but that didn't happen. Uh, they didn't think the death of, of Jesus was, was part of the Messiah thing. Um, and, uh, but now, with no Messiah on the horizon, but still being big fans of Jesus and his teaching, they said, you know, I bet uh, something was going on here that he was already the Messiah. But because uh, look at the stuff he did. Look at the miracles we're told he did. Uh, that's pretty remarkable. I, I bet he was the Messiah because it's sure better than thinking his promises failed. Right. Uh, maybe he was keeping it a secret for some reason. Well, why would he have done that? And they uh, then came up with, uh, well, before they answered that, they, I don't know why they did, uh, but uh, th there were a couple of different opinions held by two different Christian groups as to when Jesus became the Messiah, if his, his earthly career was already that of, of a Messiah. Uh, some said, well, he, he must have been 
adopted as the Messiah at the baptism at the Jordan, right? Because the heavens part and the heavenly voice says, you are my son on whom I am well pleased. Okay, he's not going to tell this to Jesus if Jesus already knows it. So that must be the moment he became the Messiah and undertook his uh, his great deeds. Uh, and uh, and then and then what about his death? Well, maybe that was an atonement. Uh, maybe that was part of the messianic job description that we just didn't understand till it happened. But another group said. Uh, no, uh, no, he only became the Messiah at the resurrection, uh, and uh, and uh, they and because um, that's when anybody first heard the suggestion that he was, and so you have the uh, somebody wrote up the transfiguration story, which was probably originally a resurrection story, an Easter story. Uh, and uh, and Jesus uh, sh shows up in his heavenly glory, and uh, they understand that he's, and the heavenly voice again says, this is my son. Okay, that's when he became the Messiah, and don't we read elsewhere, like in Acts 2 and uh, 14 and uh, Romans 1, that he became uh, uh, the Lord and Christ, he was declared son of God at the resurrection. Uh, well, all right, then. That's when he became the Messiah. Uh, but once they decided to... Uh, okay, okay, let's leave it at that for the moment. So you had these conflicting views. Neither one really had the seriousness of a heresy. There were just different theologies of it. And so Mark was trying, on Vreda's reading to uh, reconcile these groups, and it wasn't that tough to do. He said, well, you know, I think those of you who say he became the Messiah at the baptism were right. Uh, that's the, He's anointed with the Holy Spirit. Come on, I mean, that's, you know, look at Isaiah 9 and elsewhere, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. So he he does the miracles from there on in. That's when he becomes the Messiah. Well, then, uh, what do you do about the transfiguration story? Well, that's too good to, to discard. I would never get away with doing that anyway. Okay, how about this? That isn't a resurrection episode. That happened shortly before the crucifixion. Uh, and, uh, and God was reaffirming his delight in Jesus as his, uh, his son, uh, but then why does he tell the disciples to not tell anybody about this until he's risen from the dead, which they don't understand once he says it? Well, that's not too hard to figure out either. Uh, they, uh, You see, that why would he keep it a secret until the resurrection? Well, to explain uh, an origin for the other view of when Jesus became the Messiah and Son of God. Uh, oh, granted, people only heard of this as of Easter, uh, but uh, but it couldn't have happened that way since he was already made Messiah at the baptism. So this must have happened pre-resurrection as a kind of a coming attraction. Uh, and uh, the secrecy motif is added simply to explain why uh, that uh, if he had been made the Messiah uh, at the resurrection, 
others thought differently. Oh, he was, you know, how did anybody wind up thinking he was the Messiah at the baptism if it was so clear that he had been made Messiah at the resurrection? Well, he hadn't been. It was coming attractions, but nobody heard about this until the resurrection. So it was a natural, albeit mistaken, and innocent inference by those Christians. So let's all get together around Mark's version of the story. He was the Messiah as of the baptism that was reaffirmed at the, at the uh, transfiguration, which, however, nobody was to know about uh, except those three guys. Uh, until they blabbed it, preaching the resurrection and and deification of Jesus. I know that's complicated, but that's as nearly clear as I can make it. Uh, now, if you wanted to take a, a yet more radical view of this, as some do, uh, a mythicist view, uh, you would say that the the logic is correct but the uh, the evidence is not quite right in the right sequence. What does that mean? Well, Jews were expecting the Messiah. There was no Jesus yet. He, he had not appeared, and in fact never appeared. But uh, once they, as, as the war clouds were gathering, uh, and the the Roman war was imminent, Jews were saying, look, uh, he's the Messiah has got to come. I mean, this is the hour of need. Uh, and uh, and uh, yet nothing happened, right? The, except that uh, the temple was destroyed, the city was destroyed. And uh, why did God allow that? And why didn't he send the Messiah to stop it? Those are sort of two shades of the same question. And so some said, what if he did come, but we didn't recognize him? And if so, it was certainly our fault, our lack of discernment. And because of that, God lowered the boom. Uh, and because uh, there was a doctrine of a secret presence of the Messiah on earth, and that he wasn't going to get off his butt and do anything to liberate the people until they had shown themselves worthy of it. And uh, so it's possible the first Christians were Jews that said, well, the Messiah did come. He must have come, or the promises of the Bible are, are empty. So they can't be, so he must have come. Now, what did he do? Uh, well, we don't have TV, right? Uh, there's not going to be... Uh, coverage of, the, oh, here's something else the Messiah did today. He healed this guy. Uh, Lord, I am affected by a bold patch. Uh, all these, these great uh, miracles. Uh, it, it's not that hard to imagine that uh, not all Jews would have seen uh, a faith healer, especially if he told people to keep quiet about it. Right? So they said, okay, he was here. We didn't recognize him. I guess we should have, but he kept it close to the vest. Uh, and uh, that was a big mistake we made, but that's how we happened to make it. Uh, so he did come, and how do we know what he did? Well, let's look uh, through the Bible. Let's look at any passage that has uh, a phrase like the anointed one or my son 
or uh, things like that. Uh, that's uh, or about the, the the suffering of an atoning savior, possibly. You could read it that way, like Isaiah fifty three. And so they said, okay, Jesus did all this stuff, but few, especially after the destruction of Jerusalem, the people that saw it must be dead by now. Uh, but they never told it anyway. But uh, okay, he did come. Now we're over that, so we've got to pray that he comes again quick and picks up the pieces. So, who knows? Uh, it's, uh, there's a couple of possible versions of the Messianic secret. The one I don't buy, though, is uh, the common one one hears, that Jesus did know and admit that he was the Messiah. So, at Caesarea Philippi, Peter says, you were the Christ, and he seems to accept it. Uh, and uh, and and uh, uh, he he, but he never told anybody else except the Sanhedrin when the whole thing was about to blow. Uh, and uh, why didn't he uh, tell him? Well, because everybody had uh, grown used to a crass, nationalistic, militaristic understanding, misunderstanding uh, of the Messiah and his role. Uh, and so if he said, good news, I am the Messiah, uh, th th that's, what's that going to do? Well, that's going to make people rise up in revolt. But uh, it's like Jesus says in the last temptation of, of Christ, uh, they're all getting ready to pick up stones and sticks to attack the Roman garrison. And Jesus says, hey, I, I said love. I didn't say anything about killing. Uh, well, he doesn't want to, uh, and in that, interestingly, he says, I'm the Messiah, earlier in the same scene. Well, according to the common theory, he knew that would happen if he did say he was the Messiah, so he kept it mum. I, I uh, find that really a joke, because what you're basically saying was is Jesus believed he was the Messiah, if you don't mind him totally redefining the idea, right? If everybody knew, quote unquote, that the Messiah was a righteous conqueror and Jesus had no intention of any of that, he didn't think he was the Messiah. If something else, a prophet, whatever, it's, it's, this is all just implications, deductions from Christian apologetics. It's kind of like when to uh, to uh, have an old earth creationist doctrine. You have to say, well, uh, God did create all these life forms on subsequent days of a week, but the days uh, were millions of years long. Why would he have done that? What's the point? Well, to get apologists out of a tight spot. There's no inherent reason that it makes sense. It's just, I always say, if, you, uh, if you're trying to harmonize something or you're coming up with some kind of an ad hoc argument to defend your view of the Bible, ask yourself, would this look good to me if I weren't trying to get out of a tight spot? Be honest with yourself. Okay, that's probably a good note to end on, especially since I am once again out of rain barrel questions and uh, completely dependent upon you uh, sharp-eyed 
curious Bible fans to send me some more. I'm sure you will. I probably have some more waiting for me right now. So I'll see you on the next exciting episode of The Bible Geek. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.